1: Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyadabdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jessica Barnes about her new book, Staple Security, Bread and Wheat. In Egypt, which was published in 2022 by Duke University Press, Jessica is associate professor in the Department of Geography and the School of Earth, Ocean, and Environment at the University of South Carolina. She is author of *Cultivating the Nile: The Everyday Politics of Water in Egypt*, also published by Duke University Press, and co-editor of *Climate Cultures: Anthropological Perspectives on Climate Change*. Jessica, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. To start off, could you please tell us a bit about your personal and research background, Jessica?
0: Yes, I grew up in the United Kingdom. I'm from London. Um, I did my first degree in geography in the UK and then came to the US for graduate school. Um, I have an interdisciplinary background, so my master's was in environmental management. And then I did my PhD uh, at Columbia in an interdisciplinary PhD program in sustainable development.
1: And I have a question uh, that is not exactly related to the book, uh, but I'm personally very curious about this uh, anthropological element that is present in many of your works. I mean, your previous book, Cultivating the Nile, was basically an an an, um, ethnography of water, uh, if I'm uh, not mistaken. Uh, Your or your co-edited volume is literally called. Anthropological perspectives on on climate change, and you have co-edited it with uh, Michael Dove, who I believe is an anthropologist. Um, and and your articles have been mostly published in anthropological journals. Um, and and now we have this new book, which is an ethnography of bread. So so what's the story there? Is that is it like a, a geographer by day, anthropologist by night kind of situation? <laughs>
0: Yes, I, I do teach in a geography department now. Um, I really see my work as being sort of positioned at the interface between geography and anthropology. Um, so over the course of my graduate degrees, I took a number of classes in anthropology. Um, one of my PhD advisors was an anthropologist. So I've been trained by an anthropologist, and I'm really drawn to ethnographic methods. Uh, so in terms sort of methodologically, I would position myself it's sort of pretty close to anthropology, really. Um, but a lot of my work draws on uh, both anthropology and geography.
1: Mm. Uh, I think the University of South Carolina should make you an honorary member of the anthropology department, Jessica. <laughs> um, I'm going to write to them about this. Uh, anyway, uh, let's let's talk about the book. Um, there is often a story behind every book, so uh, I was wondering what the story is behind yours. How did this book come about? <sighs>
0: Yes, well, I've been interested in wheat and bread for a long time. So I did my first field work in Egypt in 2007 and 2008. And that was for my first book project, which was all about um, irrigation and politics around the use of the Nile, waters from the Nile. Um, And a number of... uh, Well, firstly, I lived uh, lived and did research with farmers, all of whom grew wheat. So I became interested in wheat. A lot of the women in the village where I lived uh, baked their own bread. So I ate a lot of homemade bread. Um, And that was also a time of severe bread shortages back in 2007, 2008. So it was something that people were really talking about a lot. Um, I would see these long lines at bakeries. And it was kind of lodged in my mind as... um, as a topic of interest. But really, I was focused at that point on irrigation, which was what I was studying for my PhD thesis. Then in 2011, uh, with the Egyptian Revolution, I was really struck by how bread was taken up in this very symbolic way in the calls of the protesters out in the streets in Tahrir, calling for bread, freedom, and social justice. I was struck by the fact that while a lot of people had talked about questions of uh, political rights and social inequality in Egypt, much less had been said about this staple food uh, that was featuring in these rallying cries. Um, now, bread in there when the bread to the protesters, it was partly symbolic. Um, so the word for bread is also the word for life. So I think it was a symbol of kind of livelihood concerns. But I think it was also literal, uh, you know, and a lot of protesters carried loaves of bread in their hands and kind of waved them about the crowds. Um, so I really set out to this to write this book to try and understand more about, about this staple food and why it was so politically, culturally, socially significant. Um, and just as with my first book, one of the kind of goals with that book was to really sort of follow the water and see what I learned in the process. I felt that with this project, if I wanted to really understand the bread, I had to trace it back to the wheat and really sort of think about where is the wheat coming from that goes into this bread. And and sure enough, that then led me to some of these sort of interesting questions about politics and ultimately about security.
1: Mm. Uh, I want to go back to to a word that you uh, kept using in your answer, staple. Uh, which is, I mean, the core conceptual framework of the book is staple security. That's uh, literally the title of the book. Can we un- un- unpack this a little? I mean, we all know or think we know what a staple food is. If we ask someone, they would probably say it's something we eat every day. It's it's one of the, those notions that seems so simple, like like a meal uh, in anthropology, right? So, so what are uh, What is a staple? What are the characteristics of a staple, at least ethnographically speaking, in your experience in Egypt? And what is security? And putting this together, how do you conceptualize what you call staple security?
0: Yeah, well, I was just became sort of very, I I didn't sort of start out thinking, oh, I'm going to study staples. It wasn't really a concept I had sort of thought that much about. But as I started to do this research on bread, I was really struck by, you know, how this is a food different to other kinds of foods. And obviously, a lot of scholars have have written about various kinds of staples over the years. But I, I didn't find very many kind of coherent attempts to sort of theorize what is a staple exactly. Um, So thinking both about bread and then looking also across some of the literature that has written about staples without particularly kind of labeling it as such, I sort of draw out three sort of central characteristics of, of what a staple is. And one is that this is a food that really defines a meal. So There is a sense in Egypt that, you know, people haven't really eaten if they haven't eaten bread Um, or that their kind of their diets aren't complete unless they have bread with a meal. Um, So that's the sort of first element. The second element is that a staple isn't typically something that you eat on it its own it's something that you eat in tandem with something else Um, and partly that can be tied also to your particular mode of eating so in Egypt it's common that you tear off pieces of bread and then use it to kind of scoop up a sauce or pick up a piece of chicken or a piece of egg and so it actually is an implement for eating Um, and you see that in other parts of the world for example in East Africa when you know people will eat ugali with their pull off a piece of ugali that sort of stiff maize maize porridge and then use it to dip up a dip and eat a stew um and then the third dimension of staple as i see it is that there is this sort of deep cultural spiritual resonance to uh, a staple, to many staples um, and that is certainly the case with bread um, and you see this in all sorts of different realms from the fact that you know just as one example people won't readily fl- throw away bread even bread that is perhaps sort of going hard and not very mm. palatable, mm. Um, because there is this kind of cultural taboo against throwing away something that is, uh, you know, is, is so important and has this sacred, sacred dimension. Um, so that's just sort of one example. Mm. So that, so that's, the, that's what I'm sort of that's how I sort of think about what a staple is. And mm-hmm. then I decided to bring together it with, with it together with security. Again, this really grew out of my, out of my data and out of my field work. Um, security wasn't really something I'd thought that much about before. I come from a kind of background in environmental studies, environmental anthropology. Um, I certainly don't come back from a background in political science or security studies. Um, but as I, talk to more and more people about bread and about wheat, I began to see these kind of how deeply entwined this food and the crop from which it's made is it, how deeply entwined it is with the questions of security. Mm-hmm. And this is both on the kind of national scale um, in a very explicit way when the government kind of threat uh, feels so threatened by the fact that it has to kind of rely on imported wheat and it's constantly worried about are we going to run out of wheat how can we make sure we have enough stockpiled uh sort of very explicit language about this is a matter of security um but it's also present on the level of a household and how how it how important having decent tasty bread in the home is for family sense of well-being and security
1: mm. uh, and, and when um, i mean how how did this all happen i mean how have Wheat and bread come to play such an important um, uh, part in, in in the life of Egyptians. I know there are thousands of years behind this whole thing, and I'm not expecting you to tell us the story <laughs> of wheat and bread in Egypt, but could you perhaps give us a very short summary of it, uh, perhaps in the last century or, or so?
0: Yes, well, there is obviously this much longer history, which I don't really delve into in the book. But one just an interesting kind of side note is actually how often that kind of features in conversation with Egyptians. So um, ancient Egypt uh, really figures in the Egyptian imagination today as a kind of marker of legitimacy, a marker of of their national identity. Mm. And it was very frequent when I was talking with people about bread and wheat that they would refer back to, oh, well, in the ancient Egypt, you know, the ancient Egyptians grew wheat and they baked bread so there's there's something interesting there um, in the more uh, sort of in the 20th century probably the biggest shift I can um, pull out here that has brought us to where we are today is really uh, a sort of honing in of preferences on wheat-based bread so as far as I, I my understanding goes that you know eating bread is not at all a new thing in Egypt um, but one of the distinct shifts over the course of the 20th century, as whereas at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, in many rural areas, they baked bread from different grains as well. Like there was a lot of corn-based bread, barley-based bread. Um, Over the course of the 20th century, there was real shift towards a primarily wheat-based bread. So there Mm -hmm. are still some regional breads that use other grains um, that are baked by farmers in in their homes, but they are much less common than they used to be. And this has had ramifications in terms of just the scale of wheat consumption in the country.
1: Mm. And and when you say bread, do you mean like bread in general, any kind of bread? Or are we talking about a specific kind of bread that is more widely eaten or is seen as um, sort of stapler than other breads?
0: Oh, well, I I guess I was talking in general about bread. um, But there are I mean, most breads in Egypt take a form of a, a kind of flatbread, a pita bread sort of style. They, they are different diameters and, and different tastes depending on the kind of grain and the, the refinement of the flour that goes into them. Um, there are a couple of other kinds of bread that you can find in Egypt, like these, uh, what are called pheno loaves. They're like little mini, uh, sort mm. of sweet baguette rolls. Mm-hmm. And in fancy supermarkets in Cairo, you can find sliced bread that they call toast, <laughs> um, yeah. that's uh, in sort of supermarkets, but, but they are definitely not, they definitely don't have quite the same staple, staple associations. Yeah. Yes.
1: Mm. And who produces the majority of Egypt's wheat, if I may ask?
0: The majority of the wheat, um, it's grown by, um, small scale farmers. So that's one Mm -hmm. very interesting thing about the Egyptian context is it's still so dominated by very small farms, you know, farms that are, you know, a couple of acres in size, maybe five acres, you know, something like 95% of all farms in Egypt are smaller than 10 acres. So it's large, primarily very, very small scale farmers who are farming wheat um, and often a couple of other winter crops as well.
1: Mm, and, and do they do it for like household consumption or for profits? Uh, th- does the government have any control over that? Or
0: Well, the government used to control, have a sort of heavy hand in agricultural production in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s. It was a very centralized agricultural system. And then since um, kind of uh, pr- a lot of pressure on the government to shift to more of a liberal, liberal agricultural sector by the international financial institutions, um, a lot of those controls were taken away, um, so now the government doesn't control uh, what people plant, uh, um, but it uh, it does. I'm sorry, I forgot the second part of your question. Actually,
1: uh, did it do it for uh, household consumption or for profit? Oh. Yeah.
0: So the government doesn't doesn't control what farmers plant today. Uh, most farmers in Egypt grow wheat primarily for high, household consumption, mm. um, but then they will sell any wheat that they don't need for their families to uh, to to the government. Oh, in I theory, see. the government is only the the only purchaser of wheat in Egypt. So they're not really meant to sell directly to the private sector.
1: Mm and is wheat also important uh, and and if if it is imported what sort of concerns and issues can we see around imported wheat as opposed to domestically produced wheat if any <laughs>
0: Yes, so the government, um, because, so I, th- I forgot to say, but the, one of the key um, dimensions of the the analysis in the book and of the Egyptian case is that there is this very large subsidized bread program. So the bread that is being eaten by the vast majority of the population, about 72 million people on a daily basis, is this one particular kind of bread called baladi bread that's highly subsidized, very mm. cheap. Um, and it's produced in... Privately owned bakeries, but the role of the government is partly to pay, pay make up the price from the subsidized sort of make up the cost from the subsidized price, to the cost of production. But also, it has to make sure that those bakeries have enough flour to produce that bread. Mm. Um, and such is the scale of this program that the government has to work very hard to access that that flour, access enough grain to make that for that flour. Mm. And about half of that they buy from Egyptian farmers, but they don't get enough from the Egyptian farmers to cover all the needs of the bread program. So they import a lot of wheat as well.
1: I see. I'm also interested to know what what kind of class relations or urban versus rural relations are involved in in, in bread making and bread consumption in Egypt. Um, Because um, I think of Iran, where, for example, people living in urban areas consume different breads and even perceive bread in different ways than people, for example, living in rural areas. Do we see similar dynamics in Egypt?
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, there are some interesting comparisons, uh, sort of contrasts. So in um, so most of my field work was based in Fayoum, which is a province about two hours southwest of Cairo. And in the village where I've conducted my research, many households, um, most households have some land, um, small pieces of land. Most households grow wheat and m- most households bake their own bread. And this is actually the kind of preferred bread to most families. Um, Mm. So that is kind of one of the big distinctions between rural and urban is that in rural areas, you still find various forms of home-baked bread that you can find in urban areas, but are much less common in the urban context. Mm. Um, However, it's not as it's not a kind of completely sharp urban-rural distinction because actually um, the, the subsidized bread is also available in rural areas. And so, for example, in the village where I did my research, people might prefer their homemade bread, but they, they might sometimes get the subsidized bread as well, either if they didn't have a chance to bake or they've run out of flour or for whatever reason. Whatever reason. Um, so subsidized bread is present in the rural context as well.
1: Mm. Um, and as sort of a, a final question, um, I would also like to know uh, a bit about your methods. Uh, I mean, how did you go? Condu- uh, how did you go about conducting the research? Did you face any challenges? Were there any uh, collaborations? What did you find rewarding about it? Um, basically, any advice or any insight you might have for, uh, especially young listeners, young anthropologists, especially those who might be thinking about doing ethnographies of food.
0: Yes, what a great question. Um, So this book draws on a number of different sources of data. So it draws in part on the um, ethnographic fieldwork that I've done in rural Egypt in Fayoum um, since 2007. So I have, um, you know, still have data from my first period of fieldwork that I drew on in this book. So perhaps that's one little hint to to people who are interested in doing ethnography is uh, the value of taking good field notes, because you never know Uh, you know when you might turn back to them so these i'm i'm using some field notes in this book that i never wrote about in my first book um but Mm. luckily had saved carefully Um, and then i and then i've also you know part of the book also becomes the story of the changes over time which i was able to do because i've been back to the village multiple times since then Uh, so that kind of longitudinal dimension was also helpful Um, so that's one piece of the book. It sort of allows me to tell a bit that sort of grounded rural story and learn about uh, wheat farmers and practices of baking bread in the rural context. Um, I also did interviews and, um, you know, talked with a number of people who work in different dimensions of wheat or bread production. So I talked with grain traders. I attended a regional grain trading conference in Dubai. I talked to people who work on things like grain storage um, and big projects to uh, kind of develop new silos. I spoke with agricultural specialists. Um, so I, I sort of drew I tried to kind of speak to experts who were uh, kind of had knowledge of different sectors in the wheat production tra- chain. Um, but I also really wanted this um, book to have, to be able to tell a bit the story of the importance of this subsidized bread in people's day-to-day lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, because quite a lot of wit has been written about this bread subsidy, it's sort of quite a famous program, you know, it's has come under a lot of critique over the years from various economists who think it's uh, expensive and doesn't make any sense to maintain it and one of the things i was really interested in is what this bread means in people's day-to-day lives um you know the people who are eating this bread not just you know on occasion but every day multiple times a day um and to do that um I, I knew that I wouldn't be able to do that ethnographic work on my own because I wasn't able to spend an extended period of time in an urban area where, where you'd really see that, where you'd really see that reliance on this form of bread. So mm-hmm. I partnered with an Egyptian research assistant, Mariam Taher,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and uh, she did uh, two, we did, well, she did and I, we did in collaboration as well, sort of two years of um, observation at, at bakeries that sell this subsidized bread in car in a neighborhood of Cairo, where she'd go sort of multiple times a week and just observe kind of how people were interacting, what they were saying about the bread, how they were handling it, um, and 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 really provided some wonderful insights into that that dimension. So uh, that's that's the other piece, the the other piece of, of the research.
1: Mm um there is obviously a lot more in the book and i encourage listeners to pick up a copy but before we wrap up the interview um i'd like to ask jessica whether you're working on something right now or are you thinking about doing your research on a particular topic in the near future
0: yes um so i'm still very interested in food um but i'm actually thinking about uh, exploring a slightly new domain in my next project um so one of my Ongoing sort of theoretical interests uh, has been in thinking about materiality, how the material nature of a particular component of the environment really shapes the kinds of social and political relations that emerge around it. Um, so that was very much a feature of my first book, Cultivating the Nile, where I was really thinking about the kind of physical nature of water as something that flows and moves in a particular way. And it was also something I was interested in in this book, you know, really trying to kind of get to grips with these um thinking about a loaf of bread and its material characteristics and what happens when it starts to mold and how do people prevent it from molding as well as with the wheat uh the sort of physical nature of grain and uh, what it means to store grain without it molding and without it you know while maintaining its quality Um, so having studied a liquid and then a solid I thought it would be really interesting to study a (laughs) gas so uh, my next project is going to be about air And uh, it would have been a a fascinating project to do in Cairo, but um, actually for a number of reasons, I'm going to uh, do this next project in London. Uh, So my next project is going to be ethnography of air and air Mm -hmm. pollution in London.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, and I know this is a forbidden <laughs> question to ask academics, but uh, do you have any idea when we could expect to read this final <laughs> the project?
0: Book. Uh, well, I'm on sabbatical next year, so I'll be uh, doing the field work in the coming year. And then yeah. uh, I should think it will take me a while. seems <laughs> to take me about six six years to write a book <laughs> yeah, <laughs> from okay. start to finish. Yes. So probably a while. But um, yeah. in the meantime, if anyone's interested in food, I'd love to love to talk to
1: them about food. So. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait to read it whenever it comes comes (laughs) out. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and uh, speaking with me today and sharing your insight and your uh, wonderful, wonderful work with our listeners. I really enjoyed reading the book, but I enjoyed it even more to talk about it with you. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you.